the fourth chapter of Genesis is, and that's the chapter we've been going through, is usually a chapter that many read and never go back and study the rich truths that the chapter contains. From a basic surface level reading of Genesis, it seems that all that chapter 4 presents to us is simply this. Cain kills Abel. From a basic surface level reading, it seems that all that chapter 4 presents to us is this brother murders his own brother. But in the past three weeks in our study through Genesis chapter 4, I hope you've seen that there's more lessons in this chapter that meets the naked eye. Genesis chapter 4, saints, is crucial. It's vital in understanding how the rest of redemptive history will play itself out. It shows us what life is like for Adam and Eve and for the rest of the world post-fall. And if there's one thing the Bible shows us post-fall, it's this. It's how badly sin has infected humanity. Cain is not just a picture of what evil looks like, but he's an example of how far man has fallen since the garden. Alongside Genesis 4 helping us understand the rest of redemptive history, Genesis chapter 4 is also crucial in teaching us about God and teaching us about ourselves. We learned about the patience and the common grace of God and God allowing Cain to live in spite of deserving death. We learned about the faithfulness and loving kindness of God in providing to Eve another righteous seed in Seth. We learned what God requires in worship, the first and the best. We also learned many important truths about ourselves, have we not? We learned in the murder of Abel how we must check our hearts and not allow any hate for our brothers and sisters to creep in. We've learned how sin is like a lion, ready to trample us. And we must be diligent in fighting and killing our sin daily. We also seen from Cain's building of a city and of his family line, this, this origins that arises of what we call the world. Or the city of man, this city that we currently are living in. But friends, out of all the wonderful truths that we learned in Genesis chapter 4 up to this point, there's still one last truth that we have yet to learn. There is still one last truth that we have yet to see in Genesis chapter 4. Out of all the peoples we've been introduced to in Genesis chapter 4, there's one person we have yet to give full consideration to. We've talked about Cain. We've talked about his family line. We've seen Lamech. We've seen um, all the, the genealogy of, of Cain. And, and we've talked about Adam and Eve. But saints, this morning, I want us to go back. And I want us to consider the life of Abel. I want us to consider the life of Abel. We were introduced to Abel back in the beginning verses of chapter 4, if you remember. Uh, We learned that Abel was a shepherd. 
We saw that Abel was the one who brought an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. And sadly, we learned that Abel is the one whose life was cut short because of his brother's anger and sin. But friends, we have to ask, is there more to Abel than just that? That's a question that we must always ask ourselves when we learn about these figures in the Bible. Is there more to Abel than just that? In other words, does the Bible only present Abel as a shepherd, true worshiper, and martyr? Or does what we know about Abel point us to something and someone far greater? Saints, this morning, we have the privilege and the opportunity given by God to see how Abel's life points us to the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That Abel's life points us to the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning, saints, I want us to examine how Abel is similar, but also different from Jesus Christ. And if you remember, this is very similar to how Pastor Antonio preached his last message in Genesis chapter 3, or, or uh, First Things, how we did a compare and contrast between Adam and Christ. Well, this morning we want to do a compare and contrast between Abel and Christ. And I have three points that will help us consider and help us compare and contrast Abel and Christ. Number one will be sacrifice. Number one, sacrifice. Number two, Suffering. Number two, suffering. And number three, blood. Blood. Sacrifice, suffering, and blood. And these are the three marks that will help us compare and contrast Abel and Christ. So if you're in the book of Hebrews, may you please stand for the reading of God's word. Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews chapter 12, and I'm going to begin in verse 21, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels and festival gather, gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now let's consider our text for this morning. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. That's the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A quick note, if you've never read the book of Hebrews, I urge you to read the book of Hebrews. It is one of the greatest uh, just treasures that the God, that God has given to the church. Uh, it's really amazing. Um, but let's consider uh, our first point this morning, and that is sacrifice. Sacrifice. After... Reading our text for this morning, the writer of the book of Hebrews' essential message is this. What we have in Christ 
in the new covenant is far superior than what we had in the old covenant. That's the essential message of the book of Hebrews, that what we have in Christ in the new covenant is far greater, far superior than what we had in the old covenant. And for you to go back to the old covenant, to the old covenant sacrifices, to the old covenant rituals, to the old covenant temporary laws, then you are simply going back to empty pictures. You are simply going back to shadows. You are simply going back to nothing. The old covenant pointed forward to someone far greater and far more superior. The old covenant pointed to greater things and greater blessings. The old covenant pointed to a greater hope and a greater home. And out of all the many greater things the writer of the book of Hebrews looks back on, in chapter 12, verse 24, he compares and contrasts the blood of Abel and the blood of Christ. The blood of Abel that we see in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, and the blood of Christ in the New Covenant. And ultimately, what the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling us is this one essential truth, and that is Abel is a type of Jesus Christ. Abel is a type of Jesus Christ. Now, you might have heard that term from this pulpit before, type. You might have studied that uh, branch of theology, typology. But to refresh your memory, a type is a historical person, historical place, historical institution, or historical event that points forward to an historical person. Historical place, historical institution, and historical event. Okay? So you have one person point, pointing forward to someone greater. You have one event pointing forward to a greater event. Okay? And this is designed by God. Types point forward to someone or something greater than itself. That's important to note. And whatever the type points forward to, it's called, it's anti-type. So you have a type pointing forward to the anti-type. Very, very simple. And what we see in uh, the right, uh, the, the right uh, the, what we see in the book of Hebrews is Abel is the type. And we see Abel pointing forward to the anti-type, Jesus Christ. Abel pointing forward to someone far greater, far more superior and Jesus Christ. Now, there are many ways in which Abel is similar, yet different from Christ. For example, Abel was a shepherd. Christ is the greater shepherd. But here in the book of Hebrews, the writer draws our attention to the blood of Abel and the blood of Christ. Now, in order for one to get blood, in order for us to get to blood, okay, one must first present a sacrifice, right? In order for us to get to blood, we must present a sacrifice. A sacrifice must be present. And in the Old Covenant, there were many types of sacrifices and offerings one was commanded to bring to God. 
And these animals that were to be sacrificed were to be holy, spotless, and unblemished. As Deuteronomy 17.1 says, You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep, which has a blemish or any defect. For that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. And likewise, Leviticus 22.22 says, Animals, blind or disabled, or mutilated, or having a discharge or itch or scabs, you shall, have, you shall not offer to the Lord or give to them or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar. And friends, these pure and unblemished sacrifices that God commanded, it's the type of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, that we see Abel bringing to God, is it not? Remember Genesis chapter 4, verse 4 says this, And Abel brought, also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So what we see is Abel is doing what God requires. Abel is bringing to God the first and the best of his flock. Abel, being a shepherd, brings to God a lamb, but not just any lamb. It's, it's the firstborn and, and the fattest of his flock. He, Abel brought to God the best lambs that he had. The lambs that were the most free from any defects and any blemishes from scabs. Abel didn't bring the torn or lame or sick animal of his flock, but he brought those of his flock that were perfect and without spot or wrinkle. And because of Abel's obedience to God, what does God do? He accepts Abel's sacrifice. Abel, in obedience to God, brought to God the best of what God required. And saints, God would not accept anything and nothing less than the best. The reason is because when God in the Old Testament required the best sacrifices, it was to reflect who he is. When God required and commanded those to bring to him holy and spotless and unblemished sacrifices, those sacrifices were to be a picture of his character. We're to be an image of who he is. God is only worthy of the best and the most pure and holy animals because he is, as our confession says, most pure and most holy. However, something else was at work in those pure and holy animals that were being presented. Not only did they present the character and show us an image of who God is. But the sacrifices themselves, and hear this, were types and shadows of Jesus Christ. That the sacrifices in the Old Testament that we see being presented to the altar were types pointing forward, were a shadow pointing forward to the substance, Jesus Christ. The pure and holy and unblemished animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant pointed to the one who was to come, who was truly holy, who was truly pure, and who was truly without spot or wrinkle. Peter says it best in 1 Peter chapter 1, 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with the perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed, from the empty way of life 
you inherited from your forefathers. But the precious, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. You were not, you were not redeemed by silver and gold, the things that the world values the most, but you were redeemed by something far greater, something far more valuable. The blood of Christ that is without spot or wrinkle. John Gill, commenting on this verse, says, The lambs of the daily sacrifices and all others were to be without spot and blemish, and in which they prefigured Christ, who is without the stain of original and the spot and blemish of actual sin. And I love what he says here. And so was a very fit person to be a sacrifice for sin and a redeemer of his people. It was necessary for the second person of the Trinity to take on human flesh and to become a sacrifice on the behalf of his people. You might ask, well, why didn't the Father come? Or why didn't the Holy Spirit come? It was fitting for the second person of the Trinity to come, to be a sacrifice for his people. Paul tells us in, second, in, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. The Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus Christ knew no sin. Which doesn't mean that Christ wasn't aware of the temptation of sin that he felt in his humanity, right? He definitely felt it. Nor does it mean that he didn't have a knowledge of sin. But what it means is Christ didn't experientially know what it feels like to commit a sin. He didn't experientially know what it feels like to disobey God. Jesus Christ who was truly God and truly man, was truly sinless. Truly sinless. Not only in his divinity was he holy and spotless, but in his humanity he was pure and without sin. The totality of Christ's being was without sin, without, sin, without spot or blemish. And what Christ does on our behalf is rather than present a spotless animal, to make atonement for our sins, he offers himself as a sacrifice. The blood and bulls and goats couldn't remove sin, but they simply provided a temporary covering of sin, only for a moment. But Jesus Christ, the better sacrifice, doesn't simply cover our sin. He removes our sin by imputing them onto himself. But saints... It gets better than that. It gets way better than that. Not only does Christ remove our sin and impute our sin onto him, but the great news of the gospel is not that Christ only takes our sins away and only removes our sin, but he gives all those who have faith in him alone his perfect righteousness. There's a great exchange that not only happens at the cross, but began to happen in eternity past. That the Father would give to Christ a love gift 
and start this process of the sins of the people that he gave to his son being imputed into his son and the righteousness of his son being imputed into his people. We give our everlasting debt to Christ and he credits to our account his perfect righteousness. And, and in other words, and if, you, if, you're ever in, if you are in debt right now, this is good news. In other words, Christ just doesn't remove our debt, but he fills our bank account up in a positive way. He doesn't leave us with a negative balance. He overflows our balance with the riches of his grace and mercy. He takes our sinful garments and he gives to us his righteous robe. We give to him our dirty laundry and in exchange he gives us his clean laundry. The spotless animal sacrifice that Abel presented to God was a picture of Jesus Christ. Abel's offering foreshadowed the type of offering that would be presented for the sins of the world. John the Baptist said when he saw Christ, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What did John see that others didn't? He saw the only sinless sacrifice that would not just temporarily cover the sins of the world, but entirely remove the sins of the world and bring his elect back into fellowship and peace with God. That's what John the Baptist saw when he saw Jesus Christ. Saints, when we think about the gospel and when we think about what Jesus has done on our behalf, let us not skip over the, sin, the sinless life of Christ. Let us not look past the active obedience of Jesus Christ. Because without Christ's sinless life, hear this, saints, we have a good sacrifice, but we don't have a perfect sacrifice. In order for the wrath of God to be satisfied, Jesus living a sinless life was necessary. If there is no sinless obedience to the law, then there is no salvation from under the curse of the law. Saints, that is why it's crucial for us to understand the obedient, sinless life of Christ. Because, saints, it's not just Christ's death that saves us, but also his life saves us. Now, one might ask, how does the sinless life of Christ relate to Christ's sacrifice? What relationship is there? This, the sacrifice of Christ reflects his sinless life. The sacrifice of Christ reflects his sinless life. As Leviticus 17:11 says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. What that person has done throughout his entire life is seen in his sacrifice. Only someone who was completely sinless could offer himself up as a sinless sacrifice, not just for himself, but for others. So the first similarity and difference between Abel and Christ is the type of sacrifice each present. Abel brings to God a holy sacrifice. 
that prefigures and looks forward to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Thank God for his for the, for Jesus Christ and his obedience to the law, obedience to the commands of God, his perfect life. Now let's move on to our second point which is suffering. Suffering. Not only do we see the sacrifice that Abel brought to God a type of 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 the sacrifice Christ offers, but we also see Abel points to Christ and the way he suffers unto death. That's important to note. That not only do we see a relationship between the sacrifice that Abel brought and the sacrifice that Christ brings, but also we see a relationship between Abel's suffering and Christ's suffering. In other words, the reasons, the reason for Abel's death and the way he suffers unto death prefigures how Christ suffers unto death. It points forward to how Christ will suffer unto death. Now, now just, how, just as one must present a sacrifice to receive blood, suffering in many ways is necessary for one to receive blood. An animal must go through some type of suffering in the old covenant in order for it, in order for it to, in order for the, the, the person to receive blood. So in what ways was Abel's sufferings similar to Christ? In what ways can we see Abel's sufferings similar to Christ? As we know from Genesis chapter 4, after his offering was rejected by God, Cain set out a plan to murder his brother Abel. And it's striking because we see the same with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew 12, 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Just as Cain set up a blueprint and a plan to kill his brother Abel, in Jesus' time, the Pharisees set up a blueprint. The Pharisees and scribes set out a plan, set out a plot to murder Jesus Christ. You see, saints, the Pharisees hated Jesus, just as Cain hated his brother Abel. But why did Cain want to kill Abel? And why did Cain hate Abel? Well, 1 John 3.12 tells us, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why Abel hated his brother That's why Abel killed his brother, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Abel's uh, Abel's crime to Cain was Abel obeyed God, and God deemed Abel as righteous. Abel's righteousness exposed Cain's sin. Abel's light exposed Cain's darkness. So in other words, we can say that Abel was persecuted for righteousness' sake. Abel is the first to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Ultimately, righteousness and obedience to God is what got Abel killed. And the reasoning for the murder of Abel by his brother is a picture of the reasoning Christ would be murdered by his brethren, the Jews. Just as Abel exposed Cain's sinfulness, 
Jesus exposed the Pharisees and the Sadducees' hypocrisy. Jesus exposed the corruption and the wickedness of the religious elite of the day. The Pharisees used the law to weigh people down. Jesus obeyed the law to give his people freedom from under the curse of the law. Jesus obeys the moral law of God, not only with action, but with proper heart posture and devotion to God. Like Cain, the Pharisees worship God from an impure heart, presenting to God offerings and sacrifices that showed them off. Look what I brought to God. Look what I did for God. Then expressing true love for God. Like Cain, the Pharisees were superficial. They believed that they could reach a perfect standing before God by the works and labors of their own hands. Christ offered up true worship and faith and obedience to God's word, not by man-made traditions. The tension between Cain and Abel is analogous to the tension between Christ and the Pharisees. And what we see from both the life of Abel and the life of Christ is this one thing is they both suffer for righteousness' sake. Each suffer for righteousness' sake. Saints, it's a good thing. It's a worthy thing to suffer for righteousness' sake. But also, it's a good thing to want to be holy. Don't just don't think that because you're coming to church you're reading your Bible and you're praying and all this other stuff that people are viewing you as somehow a Jesus freak. Being holy and obeying God is a righteous thing to do. It's a holy thing to do and it's what God commands us to do. But where we see these two being killed for righteousness' sake and, being, and suffering for righteousness' sake is where the similarities end. That's where it stops. Yes, both suffered for righteousness' sake. Both were murdered by the hands of their brethren because they obeyed God's word. But that's where it stops. That's where Abel's suffering stops. And that's where Christ's suffering heightens. Although Abel suffered, his suffering was incomparable to the sufferings and humiliation of Jesus Christ. Friends, when we think about the sufferings of Christ, we often are inclined to think that the final agonies of his life constituted the whole of his sufferings, which means this. Christ's only time of suffering is seen at his at the final agonies and the final stages of his life. When when Christ is going to the cross. And when he tells his disciples that he's going to a place where they can't come, and when he's in the garden of Gethsemane, and when he's on his way to Golgotha's hill, then that's when the sufferings of Christ begin. But saints, that's a wrong interpretation of the sufferings of Christ. Friends, his whole life was a life of suffering. The entirety of Christ's life was a life lived of suffering. His sufferings didn't begin toward the end, but rather at his birth. And that life of suffering accompanied Jesus until his death on a cross. Louis Burkhoff says, since 
He trod the wine press alone. His loneliness must have been oppressive. And, since, and, and his sense of responsibility might have been crushing. He's suffering, his suffering was consecrated suffering. And hear this, increasing in severity as he approached the end. Meaning the sufferings of Christ was a suffering that escalated toward the end. Which means Christ's suffering increased day by day and year by year as he approached the cross. The sufferings of Christ was the servant life that he lived. That was, a, that was the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of the sinless one was seen in his daily association with sinners in a sin-cursed world. The way, of, the way of obedience for Christ was at the same time a way of suffering. He suffered from the repeated assaults of Satan, from the hatred and unbelief of his own people, and from the persecution of his enemies. Christ and his life suffered in body. He was spit on and mocked, struck in the face and beaten. But let's not think that the physical pain of Christ is what constitutes the essence of his sufferings. But that pain accompanied with the anguish of soul and the sin of humanity with which he was burdened. Not only did Christ suffer physically, but in his soul, in his mind, he suffered. We read that Christ agonized in the garden where it says his soul was exceedingly sorrowful, sorrowful even unto death. It goes even further that he sweated drops of blood from the thought and from what he was having to do or what he was going to do and to drink the cup of wrath that the Father prepared before him. But we see, saints, the greatest suffering from our Lord is in that moment on the cross when he experienced what Habakkuk one thirteen says, your eyes are too pure to look to look to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. This moment in the life of Christ was the apex of Christ's suffering. On the cross, Jesus cries out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Having been silent during the three hours of darkness, creation couldn't even witness the eternal Son of God being crucified. In the anguish of his soul, he cries out. His soul breaks out. And in his, in, and in his humanity... He cries out to his God. Why have you forsaken me, God? What does that mean? There's many interpretations of what many think that that means. But I think John Gill says it best when he says, For a moment Christ was without a sense of the graciousness presence of God and was filled 
with a sense of divine wrath. This was the lowest point in the life of our Savior. The moment when Christ felt the weight of all the sins he was dying for. This moment was the climax of the sufferings and the agonies of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his life, Christ was forsaken by his friends and disciples. And in his death, he was abandoned by his God. Saints, don't ever think that Jesus can't sympathize with your suffering. But don't ever think for one second that you can sympathize with his. If you think that you have a bad in your life, think about God. There was never a time when God abandoned you. But there was one moment when God abandoned his son. One might ask, why did Christ have to suffer? Or did Christ have to suffer? Was all of this necessary? And the answer is yes. Jesus had to suffer because suffering is a part of sacrifice. In order to get to sacrifice, one must suffer. God decreed in eternity past that the way of redemption would not be through the sword and conquering nations, but it will be one of lowly suffering and sacrifice. Saints, praise God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Praise God for what he went through to redeem his people out of the slave market of sins. Something that we could never, ever, ever go through. But he goes through it on our behalf. Our Lord lived a life of escalated suffering, a suffering like Abel that ended in death. Now let's consider our last point, blood. Blood. We have looked at how both the sufferings of Christ and the sacrifice or the sufferings of Abel and the, and the sacrifice of Abel prefigured the sufferings and sacrifice of Christ. Now let's consider our text this morning. <laughs> now let's get to our text and now let's preach. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, if you, if you will. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Glory be to God. We've already examined the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And after Cain murdered Abel, his brother Abel, God intervenes. And God goes after Cain. And in the midst of God going after Cain, he interrogates Cain. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 10, the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. You guys remember? From the field where Abel was murdered, his blood cries out to God. From the field where Abel was murdered, his blood speaks 
It's a cry from an innocent man who's been brutalized and afflicted. If you remember throughout the whole of Genesis 4, Abel never spoke one word. But now from the ground, his blood cries with an agonizing cry to his God. But what was Abel's blood saying? What was Abel's blood speaking from the ground? He was crying out to God for justice and vengeance. His blood cries out for this wrong that his brother committed against him to be made right. Abel's blood cries out for himself, but also cries out for his brother to be persecuted. But saints, the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ, speaks of better things than the blood of Abel's. Abel's blood cries out for vengeance and wrath, but Christ's blood cries out for forgiveness and reconciliation. Abel's blood cries out for justice. The blood of Christ cries out for justification. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance from the ground. Christ's blood cries for peace and pardon from heaven. Abel's blood speaks only for one person, Abel. And only speaks against one person, Cain. Christ's blood speaks for every elect sinner whom he died for. And it speaks against one person, sin. Christ's blood speaks for every sinner whom he died for. The crying of Abel's blood only lasted for a split moment. Only for a second for God to hear. But the blood of Christ will cry until every elect person is redeemed. Abel's blood brought banishment upon Cain. Cain was sentenced to be a wanderer and a fugitive all over the earth. However, the blood of Christ restores us who were wanderers in our sins, who were fugitives in our sins, and he gives to us a promise of a future paradise. And lastly, Abel's blood stained the ground, but Christ's precious blood washes the stains of our sins away forever. It's Christ's more excellent blood that you, saint, are covered in. It's Christ's blood that removes our punishment. It's the blood of Christ that removes us from under the curse of the law. It's Christ's blood that removes the barrier between sinful man and holy God. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 20, 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And hear this, which he obtained with his own blood. By the blood of Christ, the church is purchased. Our Lord's blood has purchasing power, not only to obtain us, but to cleanse us, to wash us, to sanctify us, and to make us righteous and holy. Paul says in Ephesians 1 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The blood of Christ that speaks of far better things. And saints, these better things are the things that the writer of the book of Hebrews is alluding to. These are the better things the blood of Christ speaks of. And in closing, friends, the question I have for you this morning is whose blood is speaking on your behalf? Whose blood is speaking on your behalf? Which blood are you covered in? Abel's blood, although it pointed to Christ, never saved Abel. The blood of Abel represents man's inability to cleanse his sins on his own. Yes, Abel's blood is a type of the blood Christ uh, will present, but it's also a, a reminder to us that our own blood or any other blood is insufficient to forgive our sins and trespasses. Abel's blood represents man's inability to save himself. But saints, praise be to God. That there was one. There was one whose blood was sufficient enough to cleanse us and save us. Yes, man's blood was was unable to to save us. It was insufficient enough to save us. But there was one man's blood who came and was poured out on the behalf of his people. That praise God that there was one who was fitted to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. That there was one who took on flesh on our behalf. But the difference is this one, this one who came, was beyond the reach of the effects of the fall. That this one who came was the one who finally stood up to the curse of Adam and said, enough is enough. And saints, that one is the eternal Son of God who became flesh, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived a life of suffering on the behalf of his people, who obeyed the law faithfully and fully on the behalf of his people, who lived a life on the, a perfect life on the behalf of his people. And Christ takes that perfect life and he sacrifices himself on the behalf of his people. On the cross, our Lord shed blood in order for his people to be washed from, his, from their sins and for their sins to be removed entirely. Our Lord suffered all the way till his death. But praise be to God that death could not hold him. For in three days, Jesus rises from out of the grave showing his people that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father, and they, on the account of him alone, are declared justified. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father in his mediatorial office, making intercession on the behalf of his people. Saints, I usually leave you with one or two applications from the sermon. But today, I don't present to you a life lesson. I present to you Christ and him glorified. I don't leave you with an application, but 
Rather, I, I leave you with an exhortation. In light of everything we've learned this morning, I exhort you, I encourage you, I urge you to trust in Jesus Christ alone. Put not your faith in anyone or anything in this world, but trust in the one whose life, death, resurrection, and ascension speaks of better things. Let's pray.